Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on March 10th. You can send your comments to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is the third program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about communities on edge, threats and intimidation in the public sphere. We'll talk about anger and intimidation in politics, especially in our local politics. Where is this coming from? What is it that puts schools and elections in the bullseye? What measures could officials take? What can ordinary people do when they're in these meetings and circumstances? Bills have been introduced in Maine to provide heightened legal protections for election and school officials. How effective can these be? Can we still have a deliberative democracy in this moment? This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Patty Du Bois is the Waterville City Clerk and the Legislative Policy Chair for the Maine Town and City Clerks Association. Welcome, Patty. Jordan LaBeouf is Associate Professor of Psychology and Honors at the University of Maine. Welcome, Jordan. Thank you. And Paul Markosian is an Ellsworth business owner and member of the Ellsworth School Board. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So politics has gotten pretty tough lately. Emotions are spilling over in our own towns. Our town and city clerks have long been among our most trusted public officials. We all know them. But in Maine, we're seeing heightened emotions, anger, and intimidation directed towards even these election officials, school boards, teachers, and other public servants, people we know right in our own communities. Some school officials have resigned. Some are taking out restraining orders. Some are under threat of recall. Where is this coming from? Is this an expression of a real grievance or is it being motivated by people with self-interest at stake? Is it a frustration, a genuine frustration, a tactic of intimidation or both? What can we do to lower the temperature and work together? We're going to talk about all of these things in the hour ahead. Patty, let me put it to you first. Tell us what you're observing among election officials. Well, here in Maine, we um, are aware of two threats that have come to municipal clerks as election officials uh, since 2020. Uh, one was a death threat. So based on those situations, the Maine Towns and City Clerks Association uh, decided to put forward legislation to try to make it a higher crime because it's a misdemeanor crime. Uh, to threaten an election official. Uh, so we did, uh, we worked with police chiefs, district attorneys, the attorney general, the secretary of state to develop language. And we proposed a bill which is found in LD 1821. So we, we take it seriously. Uh, we're concerned about the, the level of frustration um, that we are encountering um, on a daily basis now. And we wanted to take action to try to raise awareness about the issue, but also to offer some protection uh, to our colleagues around the state and around the country. What are you hearing around the country? There was an article in Politico that came out last week that said something like eight in 10 election officials have are feeling the pressure and the intimidation and um, many are quitting or thinking of yeah. it. 
Yeah, we, we are seeing that in the state. We've had some seasoned clerks leave the profession because they they are just uh, frustrated by the the questioning of their integrity regarding elections. And, and that's understandable. You know, we work hard to do a good job. It's a complex task um, in administering elections. We take it seriously. So it's disheartening to 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 have that target on you. We're seeing it around the country as well uh, that um, there are a lot of very seasoned uh, election officials in much larger jurisdictions than what we see here in Maine that are finding that they don't want to put their families and their coworkers through the threats and and dealing with those threats. Um, So they're choosing to move out of the profession. Yeah. Paul, tell us what, what, What's been your experience on school board? Yeah, so I've been on the school board for eight years now. Um, it was a pretty quiet job for most of that time until COVID came along. The mask, the mask, well, the, uh, remote learning and then the mask mandates were things that really got people stirred up. And since then, we've also had people um, complaining or addressing topics such as uh, critical race theory. They want to know if it's being taught in our schools. If we say no, then they come back with, when did you start teaching critical race theory in your schools? So it, it's not really, um, it, it, this narrative has taken form that critical race theory can be anything that people want it to be. You know, they, it's, it's not, if you try to say, well, it's an academic framework developed, you know, that's taught at graduate level and it's not really something we do K through 12, that, that's not that's not the that's not an effective response because people are they're convinced that it's some people are it's a small number though and um the other thing that people are uh, uh, upset about now is um uh books and uh lessons that address um lgbtq topics there's um activists that are trying to both across the nation and and here locally who are trying to stir things up and get people uh promote outrage and get people to come to school board meetings and and address these things. And you can, and there's some organizations like the Heritage Foundation and the Manhattan Institute that have developed scripts and uh, protocols for how to do these things. So a lot of people are using the same language, you know, because they're, they're getting it off a template, but it's not a lot of local people who are, who are doing this. A few of them have bought into it and they come to our board meetings and, and address it. But um, especially with the critical race theory, I don't see in in my community that hasn't taken off in a big way yet, but masking was really big. And now that we, last week, we voted to go without masks following guidance from the state, which we, you know, everyone has pretty much gone that way now. That's going to, that has subsided and we'll see whether these other topics um, start taking their place in, in a bigger way. Well, one more question to you. I read in the paper a little while ago that some of the school board members took out protection orders at one point. Is that true? That's right. That's right. Yes, that's true. So we had a we had a meeting and during the public comment period, um, an individual in our community um, used what many perceived to be threatening language towards the school board. He got up and he said, I can't quote him exactly, but something effective. I'm giving you 90 days, 90 days to prove that masks work, that kids aren't being harmed by wearing masks. And, and then he said, if he did, you know, after 90 days, if we couldn't do this, if we couldn't meet his ultimatum, he, there was going to be consequences. And he said, now I'm not a violent person, but, and he paused. So when you hear that, I'm not a violent person, but 
you know, it sets you the expectation up that he's going to, that there's violence about to be threatened. He says, but what followed the butt was that he's going to pursue legal action against us. So, but still, I think it was very carefully calculated to instill some fear and intimidation into his audience as a result of those words that he spoke and others in his public comments. Yeah. Three of my fellow board members out of a board of five um, took out, went to the, you know, went, went to the courthouse or went to the file those orders. Um, So that's, that's really, and that's really unfortunate, I think, because it, you know, we've had other people who are dead set against the mass policies that we had, and they would come to the meetings and they would, they would try to, they would try to persuade us. That's, you know, that's what you do. If people are on opposite sides of an issue. You try to persuade each other to see, you try to persuade them to see your point of view. And there's like, I mean, I actually at the last meeting after we voted to allow mass again, I went up to one of these people when she was leaving and I thanked her for being, she came to every meeting, she sent us emails, but she was always, she was, she was, she was, she never said any, she never called us names or uh, tried to attack us and intimidate us. So she was just engaged in trying to persuade us, which is what you have to do. Right. But uh, yeah, so that, that did happen. And um, I think a lot of people were troubled by that, not just the board members who filed those orders. Jordan, put this in a big picture context. Why do you think that this is happening right now? I mean, that's a great question. And I mean, I think there's so many factors involved in, in this increase in political anger and, and violence in our uh, political violence in our communities too. I mean, even here in Maine, and one of the things I think about a lot with this sort of stuff is just how humans respond when we feel threatened. Uh, and so much of our world right now feels very threatening, whether it's the combination of pandemic, racial issues in our society, other sorts of things are are sort of constantly amping up those sorts of feelings of fear and and you know, it really a, a feeling of being unable to act in in the world and make the changes that, that you think are important. And so what we know from, from theories in social psychology, which is what I do, um, is that when people feel like their place in society is being threatened or their way of life is being threatened, what they tend to do is draw group lines really strongly. So they retreat into people who think and feel and behave and look like them. And they also tend to, to mischaracterize people outside of their group as more uniform than they really are and as more aggressive than they really are and, and, and other sorts of things. And so when we feel threatened, it's even harder to understand other people's perspective. And we misconstrue people's actions as consistent with the threats we feel instead of consistent with their behaviors. And we're not talking to them. So how could we know what their intentions are? Right. So I think in so many cases, this is an example of what happens when, when people feel really threatened. And, and I think, you know, to some of your other questions about why this is happening now and to some of Paul and Patty's comments, I do think that the anger is absolutely genuine, but I also think it's being stoked politically in a lot of ways that I think are really dangerous. Um, you know, if we look at some of the feelings of anger around the 2020 election in particular, um, I, I think there's a lot of good evidence suggesting that people feeling like the election was fraudulent, which it clearly was not, are those who are experiencing the most anger about the electoral process in general 
and who are expressing that anger. And that's not a small proportion of the U.S. Uh, a study conducted in November 2020 found that 38% of the population believed that there were some questions about the integrity of the election. But even worse, it was almost 70% of Trump voters who believed. In that same study, what they found is that 8% of the people who responded to that survey were willing or endorsed using violence as a response to unfair elections. So if a pretty significant proportion of the population is saying that they're concerned that this election was unfair, and if that's falling very clearly along political lines, and some of those people are endorsing violence in those situations, it stands to reason that if they're being told this legitimate election was fraudulent, that that is a direct path to violence. Uh, just to go a step farther, I saw recently um, candidate Bruce Poliquin was asked whether or not Joe Biden won the election uh, legitimately, and he refused to answer that question as he's done in the past. That's an active decision that is reinforcing a falsehood about the election that is a direct path to an increase in anger and violence uh, in constituents. And, and so I worry when politicians make those kinds of choices, when they have the ability to lead and to choose to dissuade the violence, but instead, even though they may not be saying, yeah, go attack your poll workers, the consequences are clear and supported by the evidence. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our, topics today, our topic today is Communities on Edge, Threats and Intimidation in the Public Sphere. Our guests this afternoon are Jordan LaBeouf, Associate Professor of Psychology and Honors at the University of Maine, Paul Marcosian, an Ellsworth business owner and member of the Ellsworth School Board, and Patty Du Bois, Waterville City Clerk and the Legislative Policy Chair for the Maine Town and City Clerks Association. This program was pre-recorded on March 10th. No listener calls are being taken right now. Patty, I'd like to ask you from um, you know, the conversations you've had with other clerks and what you've observed, what's the personal toll when something like this comes at you? Well, it's it's very personal, I think, for the for the folks that are threatened. Um, a lot of times, those threats are not only directed at the individual, but also the individual's family. Which you know, I think we all feel like you know, threaten a person. Me as what I'm doing as as my profession is one thing, but when you threaten someone's family, it makes it completely different. And it's very raw, even for people that were you know threatened you know two years ago. It's right on the surface. So. Um, it is very personal, and um, even if the threats are made by anonymous individuals through email or voicemail or social media, it's still very personal. That's the feeling that I get from the folks that I've spoken with that have received those threats. How much courage do you think it takes to stay on the job after something like that? It takes a lot, and I have seen, as I've mentioned, a lot of uh, people leaving the profession. Um, the other point is that it's difficult to talk about those threats. Uh, because of the risk of maybe increasing the threats or bringing more threats to the individual, uh, more publicity to the in individual that maybe doesn't want to be front page, top of the fold in the newspaper locally or at the national level. So, you know, it's a very fine line that a lot of these people are walking that are, you know, willing to bring the story forward and shed light on the issue, which I think is so important to all of us to understand what's happening and why it's happening and how, how to deal with these types of threats. 
Paul, in, in the Ellsworth School Board situation, the three of five members that took out the protection orders were all women. Do you think this lands harder on women? Gee, I hadn't thought about that. It's it's possible that it does. Um, we we only have one uh, male member of the board, and that's me. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I I think that um, that. But we've also had our board members have been targeted. Their family members have been targeted and singled out for um, ridicule, and like including the spouse of one board member and the child of another board member who's in middle school. So that's really disturbing. Um, I don't know if it would be more disturbing for necessarily for female or male, but um, I know as a parent, I have one child in school and one who's graduated, but yeah, my wife or, or, or son was singled out. I, I, that would be very disturbing to me. I don't know that it's happened, but I do know that it's happened to others on, on my board. I saw you nodding vigorously there, Jordan. Would you like to weigh in on that, both the personal toll and the gender angle? Yeah, I mean, I I can't even having not been in that situation. Thankfully, I can't imagine the personal toll. But um, I, I think the the comment on who suffers most from these sorts of things are is worth investigating. I mean, there's no question in the data that women and minorities are targeted more in acts of political violence, in acts of discrimination, in all sorts of contexts. Um, there's, for example, uh, a 21, 2021 study on political violence um, in the United States in the Journal of Democracy showed that increases in political violence were associated with feeling prejudice or threat from women, regardless of party affiliation, and that those violence, those acts of violence were more typically targeted towards female members of leadership. And so it, it stands to reason that when those things are increasing, they are increasing more for women and minorities. Um, just to take it out of the political sphere and just to give an example from my own professional world, I was just reading an article this morning that showed that anonymous student evaluations of teaching are significantly more abusive towards female professors and minority professors. And I think that's going to generalize to anonymous comments sent to clerks and to other sorts of situations that those things, people feel more emboldened to attack people with less perceived power in society. Um, and I know that often women and minorities also don't have the, the legal structures behind them to support them in those situations that more privileged identities may have or the connections with those things. And so I think that the, the disparity is really important for us to think about. Um, Patty, I'd be interested not to put you on the spot here. But my guess is that many poll workers and clerks identify as women um, and disproportionately so. And, and so that may be one of the reasons why those attacks are going there instead of to mayors or city halls or other places that might be more dominated by people who identify as men. Right. I would, I would agree that, you know, a, a very large percentage of election officials, especially in Maine, but even across the country, are female. Um, so, you know, it's because of the proportion of women to men in this field, it seems logical that there would be a high percentage of threats to women. Uh, I would say generally that something that you touched on, Jordan, was that, you know, it's it's incredibly easy to make these threats through social media or voicemail or email. Uh, it, people are much less likely to come in person and make threats against individuals. Um, I, Paul did mention that he's had a few folks come to the school board meetings, but it's, it's pretty rare. 
um, that we see that, you know, people will be frustrated. You can talk them down when you explain the process or the law, but people are very unlikely to come in and threaten people, male or female, in person. Yeah, but anonymously online. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier. Yep. So um, do you think that this, I mean, you've already talked about how um, clerks are starting to wonder if it's worth it and whether to continue their service. And we know nationally, we've heard from members of Congress who just don't want to run anymore because they can't take it. I mean, this is, in your minds, causing an erosion of people's willingness to engage in public service. Uh, Paul, what, what do you think? I mean, do you think people are going to be as likely to run for school board as they have been in the past? I, I think that it's inter- that's a really interesting question. I think for some people, it's definitely going to cause them to reconsider um, with, you know, staying on the board if they're already on it or think about whether they really want to run. When I first joined the board, as I said earlier, it was eight years ago. We tended to have every year we have an election with um, just the exact number of candidates that we had open seats for. <laughs> One year we had an election and nobody took out papers. And so we, the deadline for submitting nomination paper had passed and somebody decided to run as a writing candidate. That actually happened a couple of times. So if anything, and then, but then this time around, this last election, uh, there was, it was, there were four candidates running for two seats. So we're seeing, and on the one hand, we're seeing more people come out to try to run for school board. But on the other hand, I think, yes, it is keeping some people from thinking, from worrying and being concerned about it. Um, when you found that there were more candidates running for school board, was was there a clear ideological divide between them? Yes. Like people were coming to sort of change the direction of the board? Two of the candidates wanted to change the direction of the board and two others uh, were supportive, for example, of uh, our policy on masking and um, didn't think critical race theory was an issue. And the other two thought, you know, we need to get critical race theory out of the schools and we need to end masking. Mm-hmm. Um, those two candidates did not prevail in the election. Mm-hmm. As it turned out. Yeah. Yeah. Jordan, but, I mean, oh, he, go ahead. They, didn't, they didn't prevail here in other parts of the country. Those, those candidates with those platforms have prevailed and, and changed the uh, direction that boards were um, moving their schools along. So, yeah. You know, and I, I've read some things and I want to direct this to Jordan. You know, there's some people who say, anger in politics. And I found this article in the conversation from a couple of years ago by an author named uh, Stephen Webster, you know, who thinks anger in politics is really sapping um, deliberative democracy and destroying our trust in government and all this other stuff. And then other authors like Maisha Cherry, um, and you can find links to these authors on our website, which I'll give you later. But um, you know, thinks that justifiable anger, especially among racial minorities, is a key motivator uh, driving people to try to make reform and change. You know, what's your view on the appropriate role of anger in this environment? And when does the expression of anger sort of tip over from a productive motivation for reform to something that's tearing down our institutions? Big yeah, question. I- 
It is a big question. I think it's I think it's important because I think you know anger is a reasonable human emotion, and one that we all experience and should experience, and and it should be able to be expressed. But just like other emotions, it should be able to be expressed in comfortable, safe ways that don't threaten and harm other people. Um, and so I, I think that. Um, that those experiences of anger are totally normal, but need to be channeled into productive democracy supporting directions instead of things that break and tear things down and deconstruct. I think de-escalation is the responsibility of leaders who can diffuse the kinds of, of progression from anger to violence. I think anger is a reasonable response, especially to injustice. And I think in so many ways, that's why people feel so angry in these contexts, because they are, in one case, at least, they are being told that they have experienced injustice by being lied to about the legitimacy of the election. In the cases, as you mentioned, of racial minorities, these are people who are experiencing injustice daily in in so many ways. And anger is a totally reasonable response to those things. Um, you know, I've seen, for example, a, a lot of calls and, and articles about the sort of weaponization of calls for civility um, and in how uh, anger is okay when it's expressed by people who are white and majority members. And then when people express anger about systemic discrimination or it comes from a, from a minority group member, then everybody has to put on the brakes and we have to say, hang on, that's uncivil. Um, and it, it just squashes the conversation. Um, and, and so I think that's a trap um, in many ways because, um, you know, when we look at more we'll say less, the least kind of violent protest, a peaceful protest like Colin Kaepernick kneeling, that was met with threats of violence against him and others who supported um, his decision. But then if there are angry protests, those are shut down also in service of civility. So it doesn't really matter, unfortunately, what minority members do in this space. They are delegitimized as either too angry or too peaceful or doing it in the wrong place or those sorts of things. So I think it really is a double bind in many ways. I, I want to, I want to mention just a, a book that I read recently um, by Rutgers professor, Brittany Cooper. Uh, the book is called eloquent rage. Um, and, and she says in the book, basically that, that I'll quote her here. She says, black anger, black rage, black distress over injustice is seen as first unreasonable and outsized and second, a thing that must be neutralized and contained quickly. Um, and she's basically arguing that in these kinds of public spaces, um, black Americans are not allowed to be as angry as white Americans. Um, and those kinds of things tend to be shut down. Um, whereas the anger of white Americans tends to be legitimized and um, enforced in these kinds of public spheres. Um, and, you know, I mean, you could see with the pandemic and the limits that were placed on in-person learning and the masking and stuff. I mean, I know a lot of parents suffered a lot of disruption if they both had full-time jobs, they had their kids home from school, they, you know, couldn't keep their businesses going. I mean, I can see there was surely a lot of frustration and anger over that. Go ahead, Jordan. Yeah. I, and one of the theories of where anger comes from in, in psychology is through frustration, uh, right? And it's through uh, an inability 
for one to achieve their desired goals when things get frustrated or stopped. And we are all experiencing unbelievable levels of frustration. I know, especially for parents who are have their world turned upside down and are concerned about the ramifications on their children. Um, and so I understand very much where the frustration is leading to anger. I hope that what we can have is our local state and national leaders who help recognize, validate that anger, but turn it into ways that we can support each other instead of uh, finding other ways to sort of channel that anger into aggression towards each other. I want to talk about, um, how leaders can respond after this little break here. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Paul Marcosian, an Ellsworth business owner and member of the Ellsworth School Board, Patty Du Bois, Waterville City Clerk and the Legislative Policy Chair for the Maine Town and City Clerks Association, and Jordan LaBeouf, Associate Professor of Psychology and Honors at the University of Maine. Our topic today is Communities on Edge, Threats and Intimidation in the Public Sphere. This show was pre-recorded. You can send comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put democracy form in the subject line. So let's let's talk about that. Like Paul, when, when the, these things erupted at your school board meeting, did your um, leaders have the tools to, I don't know, listen with compassion, de-escalate? What, how, how did people have what they needed to respond effectively? Or I think there was a learning curve. Um, I think we, our leaders got better at that as the pandemic went on. There was some, it was a little bit of a bumpy ride at the beginning, I think. And I think we did, like I said, I think we did better as, as we went on and um, that by the end of it, we were doing great. So what were the tools that people were able to deploy to handle this better? The Well, communicate like more, more communication, we knew that public comment was going to include these. These these are the topics that, that were going to be raised. So the school board leadership and the superintendent and our administrators all were at meetings prepared to explain what they were doing and how things were going, what was working, what how we were keeping trying to you know deal with the case counts when they were rising and how we were. We basically we were all trying to. Uh, explain what how we were trying to do everything we could to keep kids in school full time in person, and that was the goal that everyone agreed on. So we kind of coalesced around that. Now there are a lot of people who didn't agree with the, the masking, but um, when we just kept tried to keep steer the topic towards okay, we're doing this in order to achieve the primary goal, which is keeping our kids in school so they can be educated in a classroom with their peers full-time in person. Um, so I think, you know, at first there was maybe a tendency sometimes to just get exasperated with the repetition of the charges against us. But over time, we just learned to accept that as part of what this, our new normal, and just try to be patient and, and, and give people a chance to express their views and their frustrations and acknowledge it, listen to it, acknowledge it, um, acknowledge that we all the board members have children in our schools. So we're all, you know, we're all experiencing the same thing that, that other families are, um, the same types of things. So that try to try to get help the public understand that we're in this too. 
And now, Patty, the situation for you is quite a bit different because these things have not been coming out at city council meetings, or have they, or coming out at um, at select board meetings. These are, you know, personal and private um, correspondences with clerks individually, right? Yes, so it's not in a public forum necessarily. It's more personal. It's kind of one-on-one, -on -one, so that's a little more concerning. What tools have clerks got to address this stuff when it does come up? Well, we were kind of uh, islands unto ourselves where we had to deal with them on an individual basis. So uh, we are working, the, the Clerks Association is working with the Secretary of State's office um, through the legislation, but also um, in a one-on-one -on -one to try to develop um, reporting mechanisms for uh, municipal election officials, uh, because we don't have a clear sense of how these types of threats are reported. Um, some training on what actually is a threat, you know, when um, I think we're uh, somewhat reluctant, I would say to, especially as women in, in this profession, you don't want to appear weak or um, emotional or whatever. So you're reluctant to bring a complaint forward. Um, so some, some education on that. Um, and I, I really feel like this uh, is being underreported. Um, you know, if you're, you know, a clerk from a small municipality and you've, you've had a, someone threaten you and you contact your local sheriff, or maybe, you know, your ex-brother-in-law or whatever, and, you know, you say, you know, this person said this to me and they say, oh yeah, well, you know, that, that's okay. You know, it's, it's, um, it's not a real threat, but if you hear from him again, let me know. And that's not documented anywhere. So, you know, we think that that's happening a lot more than we realize. Uh, part of the reluctance um, from the legislature in passing legislation is there's, you know, only two cases in Maine uh, out of 500 municipalities. So it seems like it's not a widespread issue. You're but saying two that they know of, right? But exactly. There's two that we have been documented. Um, I'm sure there are lots of others that just never, either never go reported or uh, don't reach the level of, um, pressing charges or convictions. So what we're hoping to do is to set up this reporting mechanism where the Secretary of State's office is capturing that data and uh, requiring them to report to the legislature annually on the actual number of threats that are being received. Because at that point, we could take a look at the data and determine whether the current law is, is adequately protecting these folks or if we need to take that extra step and, and um, make it a higher crime. Uh, for these types of threats to the to, the, to our democracy, and I, I want to circle back on something that you were sort of alluding to, Jordan, and you did too, Paul, about the extent to which you know I, I think the people who show up and and um, take these um, public roles, speaking out at a school board meeting or posting anonymously online or whatever it is, I mean, I, I think those people are genuinely angry and are genuinely expressing a frustration or whatever. But sort of behind the scenes, there's a role for leadership in stoking this for reasons that have nothing to do with the reality, right? And Jordan, I'd like you to talk about, you know, what, what do you, where did I read this about how um, 
angry Americans, your political rage may help campaigns that people might be doing this to win win elections, not necessarily to actually correct a wrong. Go ahead and comment on that, Jordan. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like you said, I think the, the feelings are genuine. I think that um, savvy leaders are aware of how to create those feelings. I, I don't know that many of them know how to uh, uncreate them, unfortunately. Um, in fact, there's even some, some data that suggests that once we distrust a process, even fact-checking and comments from members inside our own team can't dissuade people. It's, it's a sort of a Pandora's box in many ways that once leaders sort of choose to lean into this, whether that's because they are uncertain or what I think is the much more likely case that they're being politically utilitarian, that they may be opening something they can't quite get back in the box, that they're creating a lack of trust in a democratic process, and more importantly, in our communities. Like Patty's talking about these small town, those those are close family relationships that are being disrupted by people choosing to continue to lie about the integrity of our elections or to choose to lie via omission, which is the same process. Um, So I, I think, yes, it probably is happening. We can't read people's minds and understand their motives, but just looking at the data, I would be surprised Um, to find that uh, everybody who is refusing to acknowledge the truth of the election genuinely has those questions um, and instead is um, seeing their choice to not acknowledge the truth as politically expedient. And it has dramatic consequences that I think if they really understood or believed those consequences, that they would probably choose something different and choose to approach this in a different way. Um, but but I think that they have have maybe actively chosen to be blind to those consequences and don't see their role, which absolutely has to be acknowledging truth and reducing and de-escalating that anger. I want to talk a little bit um, too about what the role might be for ordinary people. You know, like not the flamethrowers. Um, maybe you're at the school board just because like, is there a role for ordinary people in supporting our public officials? Like go to you, Patty. I mean, like what could we do ordinary people to make the clerks feel um, publicly supported? Well, I think the biggest um, issue is misinformation that's out there. Um, That if we can, if folks have questions about processes or laws to go straight to the horse's mouth and come right to your municipal election official or secretary of state and ask what, what, what the law is, what the processes are, what, what are the checks and balances and have an understanding for that. Um, and then once you know the truth as, as an individual to kind of share that when you hear people talking about election fraud or um concerns about the integrity of the election, that they share what they've learned. Um, I think someone made a point earlier that, you know, it's hard to undo what's done and people are reluctant once they believe or or mistrust a process that they're very reluctant to to have their mind changed. So I think it's it's going to be an uphill battle 
but it's something that I think we we all have to you know work to tamp down the misinformation and shine a light on the actual information so that you know you may not agree with the laws you may not like the processes but if they're done you know across the board and fairly and in accordance with those laws then you know change the laws if you don't like them uh, but we follow the laws you know so I think that's an important point to make to the public. Jordan is there a way that people could frame those conversations that would make them more likely to be heard? Yeah, I I really loved Paul's comment about one of the things that was really effective was identifying a common goal and focusing on that goal. Um, what, what we know about when conflicts get pretty escalated is it's really hard to communicate across those group lines. And one of the things that's really effective is cooperating on a, a commonly agreed on goal. Um, and so if leaders can identify what those things are and really build some cooperation around it, there's going to be disagreement about the best way to achieve that goal. But as long as we can build trust that we are all working to achieve that goal and we can identify what those shared goals are, I think that's a, a great path towards addressing some of those things. I do think other things would be helpful. I think it's it's maybe unfortunate, but necessary for municipal leaders to have some training in de-escalation and it, just in listening, in how to listen to somebody who you disagree with in a thoughtful and compassionate way, in perspective taking. It turns out humans are very bad at this by nature. And what, what is that, Jordan? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So just being able to imagine how somebody else is thinking and feeling in a situation, not just to sympathize, to understand how someone might, but to really try to put yourself in their shoes and feel the feelings that they're feeling and really, really get where they're coming from. I think we are we don't want to do that for people because it's uncomfortable, especially people we disagree with or people who are being aggressive or or uncomfortable towards us. But uh, it, it's part of the process. If we reject that, then we tend to escalate things because they don't feel heard. Uh, and, and it just sort of reinforces the narrative that there is this disconnect between leadership and the, and the populace. And so I, I would love some training for those folks, um, you know, whether it's through municipal organizations like Patty is talking about, or whether that's through Secretary of State's office or, or legislative rules or other sorts of things, just to help build that community, which I think is the key to reducing aggression in those communities. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Patty Du Bois, Waterville City Clerk and Legislative Policy Chair for the Maine Town and City Clerks Association, Jordan LaBeouf, Associate Professor of Psychology and Honors at the University of Maine, and Paul Marcosian, an Ellsworth business owner and member of the Ellsworth School Board. This program was pre-recorded on March 10th. No listener calls are being taken. So, Paul, imagine um, you've got a, uh, one of these very heated school board meetings and you've got a bunch of people there in person and somebody's, you know, mm -hmm. sort of going on to, off on a, on a rant. What would make you as school board members feel supported by the public or the community in that situation or in general? That's a great, that's a great question. Well, so 
what was tending to happen is when we'd have these meetings and there'd be angry people there and going on rants. And not only that, but when someone got up to speak, um, to, to present a point of view opposite to what they were advocating for, they would, there were some members of the audience who would jeer and talk over and make, you know, be very audible. And it was intimidating. So members of the, not only school board members and administrators were feeling some intimidation, but members of the public who would be inclined to come and support our policies were reluctant to do so because they didn't want to be targets either. Right. So, um, so I think it would be helpful if, if people would come out in greater numbers to school board meetings who, who, who are supportive of what the district's doing, or at least willing to give us a chance to, to talk about it. We had kind of a watershed moment in our February meeting, <clears throat> early February, because just prior to that, um, there was a, a public forum in, our, in Ellsworth uh, led by Sean McBriarty, who is um, campaigning very aggressively, in my opinion, against uh, what schools are doing, the masking policies, critical race theory, and um, you know, t- uh, curriculum around uh, LGBTQ. And during his forum, he invited, um, the, the, the turnout wasn't very great there. He had about three dozen people supporting what he was doing. But one of the community members who was there got up and, and, and made some allegations against um, a longtime teacher in our school department that, he, that this teacher had done some things that could be described as sexual abuse against completely unfounded allegations. And really, um, uh, when, that, when someone was live streaming this event, so it got out into the community. And so many parents, former students, and colleagues of this teacher and the teacher himself came to our next school board meeting uh, the beginning of February. And they rallied in support of him. And they also, many of them said to me and said to others, you know, we're going to start coming to meetings. We can't just let the angry people dominate the conversation. So, so today, the day of this taping of this, of this program is March 10th. Our, our, the next tonight is our next board meeting since that last one. So, I can't tell you during this, by the time people hear this, um, it will have uh, transpired already, but I'm interested to see how many people show up tonight and uh, if this will continue, because it's, I think it's help. It's really helpful when members of the public who are not part of the angry crowd, um, when they stay away, it, 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 it just creates a space for those angry voices to fill. And if they can come and, uh, add some counterbalance, that's really helpful. I see you nodding vigorously there, Jordan. Would you like to pile on to yeah, that? Thanks. Uh, that's my style. Um, <laughs> I, uh, um, I, I participate. I'd love to hear Patty's thoughts on this too, because uh, I think one of the key ways that you um, learn about the integrity of a process is to be a part of it. Um, we need poll workers in almost every community. Um, and those positions tend to be filled by people who are a long time in the community. Um, and it, it would be wonderful to have newcomers to the community, younger folks, be a big part of that, participate. I agree with Paul about showing up to meetings. One of the things I love about Bangor, maybe my city councilors would have a different impression of this, but I get to know them as human beings. And so when I am upset about something, they don't just see my anger 
they see me who is upset about this thing. And, and when we can have those kinds of relationships, then that anger can serve a purpose. It's not threatening. It's they see a person in their community who they know and trust who is suffering. And so they're going to respond to that in, in that way. And so I agree entirely with Paul that when you when nothing else is there, the anger takes up all the space. But when there are more people who are supportive and reasonable and who can help de-escalate those situations, then uh, the, it just takes all the oxygen out of, of the anger. Um, and so I think one of the keys, if you're a member of a community who's concerned about these sorts of things, would be to get involved in your local government, sign up for citizen committees, show up to um, to meetings, whether it be school board, even if you don't know what's on the agenda and you don't have a, 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 a statement to make being participatory uh, really helps everybody believe in our process. Is there a role like that that you can see? I mean, like like we said, Patty, you're not like a school board where you have a public meeting, um, but how, like letters to the editor. I mean, are there ways that members of communities can um, try to fill the void in the narrative to make sure everybody understands there's another perspective here? Yeah, and we're working with the Secretary of State's office on that as well to try to um, just make the process more transparent uh, to, to try to, you know, tamp down the misinformation and fill it with real information. Um, but I would say that I'm always, this is a plug for anyone that wants to work for um, elections, we're always soliciting um, help for elections, and it's not just election day. Uh, it can be before election day, helping out with absentee ballots in the office, filing, um, you know, mailings. It's just there's just a, a lot of work that goes into it, and uh, I find that people are shocked when they see the amount of checks and balances in the system, um, and the amount of detail that goes into it. So I think you know the more that people can become involved, whether it's as an election official or just, you know, being plugged into your um, boards and committees, um, it's helpful so that you learn about the process and um, just become aware. Are your um, professional associations, uh, Patty or Paul, conducting de-escalation training or active bystander training or, and like, I'm thinking it, you know, when, if I'm there and I see something, when do I pull out my my phone and start videotaping it? Um, you know, like what would I do in a circumstance like that? I don't know. But anyway, are your are your professional associations considering more training in this area, Paul? Well, um, my professional association is the Maine School Board Association, which is part of the Maine School Management Association, which includes superintendents also and. They have an annual conference every October, and there's it's a, it's a two-day conference, and there's lots of um, what they call clinics, which are basically like hour and 10-minute long seminars on various topics, and there's several clinics each hour, and you go there, and you, you choose, you look through the pamphlet, and you see what you're going to take, and they've always had, especially, well, in the last couple of years, they've had, the clinics have included um, de-escalation techniques for school board members and for, and for um uh, system administration as well. So yeah, that they, they recognize that challenge and they've, they've, you know, they've, they've risen to it. Patty, yeah, what about I would you? Say, yes, thank you. Um, 
part of the uh, amendment to our election threat bill currently before the legislature includes a requirement that the Secretary of State provides de-escalation training to election officials. Um, so I think that we, we recognize that it is an issue and, and you know, we, we do need um, those tools, all of us, um, to have at our disposal. So I think it's great that that's been incorporated into the bill. So do you want to say something, Jordan? No, okay. So I, I think we're... Um, ready to um, make some parting thoughts here. We're um, getting close to the end of the show. P Patty, let me ask you to go first. What would you like to leave li our listeners with today? Well, I, I thank you for the session. I think um, it's important to make people aware of the, the climate that we're living in and that it's, you know, as you, as you mentioned, Dan, it's, you know, it's understandable that people are frustrated with the situation and the processes. We're all living in very stressful times. Um, but I think an understanding of um, how to navigate the system as it is in place to make your concerns um, known and try to work on ways to correct, you know, things that you, that may be, that maybe need correcting. Um, but there are processes in place. You know, if you're unhappy with your election officials, uh, with your elected officials, your school board, your council, you can recall them. You can vote in new people. You can vote them out at the next election. You know, so there are there are certainly ways um, that you can work through that process. So I would encourage people to, uh, you know, be civil, uh, get involved, and uh, really learn the processes that are being followed. I think that would be helpful. That misinformation, uh, if you're if you're getting all your data from, you know, Facebook, then it's it's a problem. Or the the polarized, you know, news organizations, yeah. um, then that's that's not good. Thanks, Patty. What about you, Paul? What closing thoughts would you like to leave us with today? Um, I guess I would like to remind people that um, school boards are a unique um, institution. We're not, uh, although we're elected officials, we're not like, uh, legislators or, um, you know, members of Congress who can, um, argue with, you know, argue with each other in public and make statements in public. My appearance here today, you know, I, I kind of cleared it with my board chair and I'm not speaking on behalf of the board. I'm only speaking on behalf of myself. We really only have one constituent and that's our student population. Um, but a lot of people think, they, we should represent parents' interests or teachers' interests or members of the public or taxpayers who want lower taxes. We're here to do what's best for the students, and that's what we've tried to do through this whole process of the last two years. Thank you, Paul. Jordan, closing thoughts? You could... Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really appreciate the chance to talk about this stuff. It's an important problem nationwide, but um, it's an important problem in Maine. Uh, one of the things I love about Maine, I've lived here about 10 years, and um, I, I love that we get to know, as I said earlier, our folks in our cities, our policymakers, and we have the opportunity in Maine, unlike other places in the United States, to make 
powerful changes in our communities um, in, in really lo- sort of low effort ways. So I would encourage that if people are concerned about the processes that are happening in their communities, that they get involved in those processes. The, the barrier to entry is very low. You could show up at your town hall most of the time and just say, hey, I want to get involved. And there are going to be people there who can help you figure out how to do that. Um, and when we cooperate together on those processes, when we see how those things are conducted, when we take an active part in those things, we get the opportunity to communicate with others across those kind of ideological divisions. And we feel a part of the process. It legitimizes the process. It's going to reduce the overall anger and frustration. So I think that's a huge key to it. But I also think, and, and would be remiss not to mention, that it's really important for our leaders to take a stand against the things that create these kinds of division and violence. These kinds of feelings, the data is very clear about legitimacy of our election are what is driving a lot of the feelings of anger uh, towards poll workers and those sorts of folks. And so we need leaders that will stop lying about what happened with the election in 2020 and we will directly say um, what happened there um, as a way to to diffuse that sort of violence. So we need leaders who will be honest and we need community members who are willing to get engaged. And I think if we have those two things, then the, the quality of democracy in Maine can really flourish. Thank you so much. We are now out of time. Our guests this afternoon were all wonderful. Patty Du Bois, Waterville City Clerk and the Legislative Policy Chair for the Maine Town and City Clerks Association. Jordan LaBeouf, Associate Professor of Psychology and Honors at the University of Maine. And Paul Marcosian, an Ellsworth business owner and member of the Ellsworth School Board. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WERU.org. Org, please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic, including references to some of the articles that were talked about um, and to learn about other shows in this series. You can also subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org. Thank you all so much. We'll see you next month. <laughs>